How many of you here uh, <clears throat> would be willing to admit that they are afraid of the dark? My wife, Jessica, is afraid of the dark. She's very willing to admit it. She has no pride. <clears throat> Come on, some of you are also afraid of the dark. I actually want to look at people's hands here. Yes, thank you. Logan is afraid of the dark and willing to admit it. Sabrina is afraid of the dark and willing to admit it. I read a stat. Bell is afraid of the dark and willing to admit it. Um, I read a stat this week that said 10% of both children and adults are very much afraid of the dark. 10% of the population are afraid of the dark. I remember as a boy, this is in my preteen years, just before I, I became a teenager, so I was probably anywhere between 10 and 12 years old. I had a traumatic experience that I won't share with you, but I'll tell you, it caused me to be afraid of the dark for several months. And uh, I had to have not just a nightlight on when I went to bed, I had to have, there could not be a shadow anywhere in the room for me to be able to go to sleep. I slept under the blazing sun, basically, for months. Why, why do we fear the dark, okay? What, what is it about the darkness that causes us to be so afraid? Well, I think it has something at least to do with the fact that it's disorienting. You can't see around you. You can maybe not even see yourself. You can't see your, your own hand in front of your face. So you, you don't even have awareness of your own body. And certainly it's disorienting because you can't see what's around you. That's why we bang into things when we try to walk around in the dark. And most terrifying of all is that when we're in the dark, we cannot see if there's someone else nearby. And we can't determine whether they are friend or foe. And so being afraid of the dark is something that makes sense to us on a kind of ex existential level. Because, because being afraid of the dark is a signal to us that, that our lives might potentially be in danger. Which is also something that signals to us that we are mortal. We are people who can be killed. We can stop living. When we read this passage about Jesus' death on the cross, we're told that for three hours, from noon till 3 p.m., the land around Israel, or around Palestine, certainly around Jerusalem, was plunged into a supernatural darkness. People have tried to explain it away and say it was because of a, an eclipse, but an eclipse doesn't last three hours long, and also the Passover is always uh, celebrated during a full moon. You can't have, a, have an eclipse during a full moon. This was a supernatural darkness, and because it was a supernatural darkness, because it, it was something that God caused to happen at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, that means that, that there's, there's a meaning behind it, there's a reason for it, there's something to it. Why did it go dark? Was it just pathetic fallacy? Some of you who are, are literary people, you'll know what a pathetic fallacy is. It's when, it's when the weather is meant to mirror the mood. So, you know, it's very rare when you're watching a, a thriller movie that something scary happens in the middle of the day. It's usually on a dark and stormy night, right? Is that what this is about? God was just setting the mood 
so that we would see the gravity of the moment? No. No, it's, it's a lot more important than that. In the Bible, physical darkness is symbolic of spiritual darkness. And there are many aspects to that spiritual darkness that the Bible describes. It, it, it describes our rebellion against God as being in darkness. It, it even describes our ignorance of God or understanding about God as being in the darkness. But today is Good Friday. Today is the day that we're remembering how Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you and me. And so we're going to spend a few minutes this morning thinking about that thing, the most terrifying thing that darkness, physical darkness in the Bible symbolized. Judgment. Judgment. In the Bible, very often darkness symbolizes judgment. It was a bad omen to the Romans, but to the Jews, it was certainly more than just a bad omen. It didn't just mean something bad was going to about to happen. It meant that God's judgment, some particular bad thing, God's judgment on sin was about to happen. So what we're going to look at for a few minutes is just the darkness that Jesus endured and how him experiencing that darkness can actually dispel our own. The darkness that Jesus endured and how him experiencing that darkness can dispel our own. That's what we're going to look at. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, in verse 2, it says, Now the earth, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Another word for empty is void. Some of you may be more familiar with that word in this passage. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit was hovering over the waters. It's describing the universe, the world, as being chaotic, disordered, or you could even say disintegrated. But then you keep reading and in verse 3 it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. The whole story of creation in Genesis chapter 1 is of God's light triumphing over darkness, of God's order triumphing over disorder, of God bringing about orderliness to the chaos. And so he creates heaven and earth, and he creates the land and the sea, and he creates vegetation, and then he puts fish in the sea and he puts birds in the air he puts beasts on the field and then he creates uh, humanity and this this whole thing when you put it all together is this intricate harmonious beautiful natural world that we know and love it's integrated he brought these things together so that the world is no more formless and void and in the bible you learn that the further you go from god the further you distance yourself from God, the further you move away from God, then the further you are from the light and the closer you are to the darkness. You move towards disintegration. You move towards disorder. You move toward decay. You move toward death. We see this in the physical world all around us, right? You take a plant, beautiful hydrangea plant here. That is a hydrangea, right? Okay, a <laughs> few beautiful hydrangea plant here and you put this thing in a closet where it gets no light at all and eventually what will happen to it it will die it will decay it will fall apart 
Don't say, what about mushrooms, okay? Just stick with me here. The earth itself. The earth itself, if it were to get bounced off its orbit and hurtle into space and move away from the sun, what would happen to the earth? It would start to get colder and colder and colder and it would, it would start to disintegrate and everything on it would eventually die. We see this in the, on the psychological level as well. Darkness has a way of, of uh, uh, causing or bringing us to a state of disintegration. Uh, in 1914, Ernest Shackleton was an explorer, a world-renowned explorer. He was a Brit, and he wanted to be the first to cross the Antarctic on foot. And so he gets a ship, and he gets a bunch of crewmen, and he sails down to Antarctica. But what happens is, is he gets stuck in the ice. His ship gets stuck in the ice before he even reaches Antarctica, and they're stuck in the ice for months and months and months uh, and unable to get out. And they have to endure this time of, of, of being stuck in the ice before it thaws and they can carry on their, their travels. And one of the biographers of, uh, of Shackleton was, or of this story of Shackleton, was a man who was part of his crew. And he wrote a book. And listen to what he says in this book about being stuck on that ship for all those months. He says, in all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day, week after week. Few unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. Imagine engulfed in darkness, pitch black, for day after day after day, it drives you mad. What is that? Be madness is, 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 is psychological disintegration. If you know your Bibles well, you'll know that there's a story in the Old Testament about the people of Israel who are slaves to the nation of Egypt. And God decides to free them. God decides to miraculously take them out of Egypt and establish them in another place. And what does he do? He, he sends all these plagues upon the nation of Egypt. He sends things like, like uh, gnats and, and frogs and boils and flies. What is he doing? The natural world is falling apart. God is giving a, an object lesson to the Egyptians and saying that your gods are not in control of this universe. I'm in control of this universe. I put it together and I can take it apart. And so he sends all these plagues to demonstrate that. And then he's going to send judgment. And what happens just before he sends the final judgment of the death of the firstborn? He plunges the land into darkness. The prophets... Speak about God's judgment in these terms. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. 
I looked at the mountains and they were quaking and the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert and its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. That's a, a prophecy of God's judgment on the nation of Babylon. But God also speaks of the last day in Isaiah chapter 13. And this isn't just a judgment on Babylon. This is a, a judgment on the whole earth. Beginning at verse 9. It says this. See the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day. With wrath. And fierce anger. To make the land desolate. And destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations. Will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and I will humble the pride of the ruthless. What Jesus endured in those hours of darkness on that cross so many centuries ago was this. God's judgment for sin. And in verse 34, it says that Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he cried that out and the sun was blotted out and the world was plunged into absolute darkness, Jesus was losing the light. He was losing his father. He was getting our judgment day. He was getting Isaiah 13. He was getting Jeremiah 4. He was getting the plagues and the horror of uncreation, of cosmic darkness. The water and the blood, it flowed down. And God himself allowed his full wrath for sin to fall on his son. You know, Colossians 1 verse 17 says about Jesus... He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And yet, here he is, unraveling, engulfed by the darkness. Jesus, the maker of the world, is being unmade. All this happens during these hours of darkness. Why? Well, Habakkuk 1 says about God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. On the cross, while he was on the cross, the father had to turn his eyes, his face away from his son so that the light of his countenance, of his love, of his blessing, of his faithfulness was snuffed out for Jesus. You know, in, in Numbers, we read the Aaronic blessing. Sometimes I use that blessing at this church. And what does it say? It say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Like the sun. And be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you. And give you peace. 
But here is Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of, of all the people who deserve to have the ironic blessing placed on their head, it was Jesus Christ who lived this perfectly obedient life. And that doesn't just mean that Jesus followed all the rules and made sure he didn't do the wrong things and made sure he did all the right things. For Jesus to live a perfect life means that every breath he took, every beating of his heart, every pulsing of his of his lifeblood was was purely for the glory of his father. He loved his father with every fiber of his being. He was passionately devoted to his father in every part of who he is. That's what it means for him to live a perfect life. And of all those who have ever lived, he's the only one who didn't deserve what he got. And in his most abject moment of terror, he cries out to his father, whom he has been faithful to to the end, and says, why are you forsaking me? Because he was the sin bearer. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. It means that he was treated as a sinner. Our sins were laid on him. The father couldn't look at his son because he was bearing our sins on that cross. That's, that's, what, it mean, that's what the darkness meant. The son of God was being torn apart and bearing the disintegration that is the just punishment for our sin. That's the darkness that Jesus endured. But now listen, friends. Because Jesus endured that darkness, our darkness can be dispelled. Because Jesus was plunged into outer, utter darkness, pitch blackness, in separation from God, he was, he was sent into the void. He was plunged into the, 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 the deepest depths of hell itself. That happened to Jesus so that the ironic blessing that the Lord would make his face to shine upon you would be guaranteed that you would never know darkness like that. It dispels your darkness. Look at, look at verses 38 and 39. It says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is the curtain? The curtain was that, that, that separation between God and his people. Once a year on the day of, of, of atonement, the high priest was allowed to go through that curtain and enter the presence of God on behalf of the people. But that real presence of God was always mediated by that high priest and it could never be broken through by, by regular people like you and me. But now... It says that that curtain was torn in two. You were entered into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. And it says in, in 39, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus, Mark is telling us that Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And that his tearing of the veil was meant not just 
So the Jews could enter in, but so anybody could enter in. Anybody who is willing to put their trust in this Jesus can, can walk through the courts of the temple and walk straight into the very heart of the presence of God and not be consumed by his judgment, but be welcomed as his child. And to prove that, that's why he, he says, the centurion said, surely this man is the son of God. What, what's a centurion? What is a centurion? A centurion is a battle-hardened officer in the Roman army. They were enlisted men who fought a lot, saw a lot of war, saw a lot of death, somehow survived, because most of them didn't, and made his way through the ranks, proving his commitment and fidelity to the empire and to Caesar the emperor, and was granted this this incredible uh, post as a centurion. It was a real honor to be one. They had proven themselves. And out of all the people who are watching Jesus die on this cross, who are trying to understand it, of all the folks, the the Jews who who had parts of the Bible, swaths of the whole Testament memorized, and the leaders and scribes who spent their day-to-day lives trying to interpret the scriptures and were constantly searching for the Messiah, and the people who knew Jesus when he was a boy in Nazareth and saw him preach and teach throughout Judea and now are watching him die on the cross, they're not understanding it, but this, this pagan, this Gentile, this woman calls Jesus the Son of God. And he does this at risk of his very life because, you see, that would be considered treason to the Romans because Caesar's the Son of God in the Roman pantheon. And in the Roman political system, that's what you believed. Caesar was the son of God. And this, this, this crazy Gentile centurion is saying, surely Jesus is the son of God. Why was he the first one? Why was he the first one to, to, to get it? Well, it says in the text that, uh, where does it say it? Oh yeah, there, verse 39. It says, Um, when the centurion stood there in front of the Jews, saw how Jesus died. I don't know if any of you have ever seen someone die. I've I've never seen someone die right in front of me. I've been in the room very soon after someone has passed away. But this centurion most certainly had seen a lot of deaths. He's a warrior. He's been in battles. He knows what it looks like to see people die. And for some reason, he saw Jesus die and the manner of his death was different to the point that it changed him and it transformed him. Because you see, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as he witnessed this Jesus dying, he was seeing that Jesus was taking his darkness upon him. He was seeing somehow he understood vaguely, but, but he at least understood this much, that this Jesus was a substitute, that he was a stand-in, that he was doing something for us on our behalf. That Jesus took the judgment for us and, and he died tenderly and he died gently and he died beautifully. And that beautiful death of Jesus, it melted this battle-hardened, crusty, rough-and-tumble centurion. The love of Jesus. It broke his heart. If you look at the cross 
Mark says, if you think about the cry he uttered and understand that that cry was uttered for you so that you would never, ever have to utter that cry, no matter what you're experiencing in life, no matter how far and distance you feel from God right now because of your circumstances, because of the things that have happened to you or the things that you're doing, and and you think to yourself, God could not want something to do with me. No matter how you think that, that because of, of the hardships that you have faced, that God has somehow said, this person isn't deserving of my love, or this person isn't allowed to have fellowship with me. Jesus dying on that cross and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It dispels any and any, any kind of darkness that you may be experiencing. Because he took the darkness for you. So that your darkness could be lifted. The darkness of your guilt. The darkness of your shame. The darkness of your loneliness. The darkness of your self-loathing. The darkness of your self-pity. The darkness of your resentment. The darkness of your bitterness. The darkness of your anger. The darkness of your addiction. The darkness of your fear. The darkness of your anxiety. The light of Christ replaces your darkness through the death of the Son of God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5. For once you were, or for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in darkness. But everything is exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it says, friends, this is why it says to you, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. The light that shines through the cross of Jesus Christ. Embrace that light. Live in that light. If you're here and you are attracted to the light, but you're afraid that it'll consume you like a moth to a flame, know that if you come in humility, if you come openly and honestly, if you come simply asking Jesus to forgive and embrace you, he will, he will shine his light on you and it will feel like the warmth of the sun. And you will not be consumed because he was consumed for you. Let's pray. Father, today we remember we remember the death of of our Lord Jesus. 
We are sorry, Lord, that we caused it, that we made it necessary. We are sorry, Lord, that we despised him, that we despised you, and that we went our own way, and that we thought that if we were masters of our own destiny, oh, our lives would be oh so great. And we have the scars to prove how wrong we are. And we're sorry for being fools and rebels. But we stand in awe and give you deep thanks and gratitude, Lord Jesus, that you didn't let that stop you from coming to get us. You endured the cross and you scorned its shame for the joy set before you. And we cannot believe that we're the joy. <laughs> it is too wonderful to believe that you look at us and we are your joy. That's the truth. You are so good, Lord Jesus. You are so good, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that when we leave this morning, yeah, we leave sorrowful at what we have caused, but we leave hopeful and joyful because we know that it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.